Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. Welcome back. In today's discussion, we've got a fairly straightforward topic, which is the discussion of the accused character in criminal cases followed by a pretty technical topic, which is tendency and coincidence. So we're just going to try to pace ourselves a little and we'll get the relatively straightforward one out of the way before being able to spend quite a bit of time and attention on the more technical topic. And alas, tendency and coincidence seems to be examined every cycle, possibly entirely as you would expect, because it plays a fairly significant part in practice as well. The alas part is that Whilst in some ways that topic is easy to recognise, it is rather technical when it comes to approaching the area with as much pace as you possibly can and as much detail. And that's the reason why we're going to be spending extra time on that. So to start with, we'll just revisit what we were looking at in terms of the balance of the discussion of um, character. Now, in relation to the accused character, unlike credibility, which applied equally to all um, cases and all witnesses, when it comes to the accused character, it's a little bit more technical. And there's a reason for that, which is probably self-evident, but it was explained very carefully by the High Court in Melbourne. So when it comes to character, the accused character is seen in a fairly one-dimensional manner by the court. And the High Court in Melbourne was a little critical of this, by which they mean that when it comes to the accused prior good character, it tends to be the case that this evidence is admissible because we would not want to deprive the jury from hearing um, of the accused previous good character. And that can be relevant in one of two ways, as we'll look at. Essentially, it can go to credibility, which we've been examining fairly closely, but it also goes to the likelihood of the accused committing the offence. So good character is generally admissible and it's relevant in one of two ways. Either it could relate to a fact and issue, so it could be uh, circumstantial evidence pointing away from guilt or and or it can go to the accused credibility. The criticism of the High Court in Melbourne is the second point, which is that the, uh, the accused tends to be protected from their bad character being revealed for the jury's consideration. So the um, High Court in Melbourne was saying that it didn't really seem to make sense that we would be so careful about admitting the accused bad character and so generous about admitting the accused good character. Um, nonetheless, in that case, um, which was in the late 90s, the High Court said the history is vexed, but we're not going to, to overturn it. And so the principles of admissibility remain the same. Good character tends to be relevant and admissible. Bad character tends to be uh, inadmissible by reason of concerns with respect to prejudice. The last point to note in relation to bad character is we've already really started this discussion and we'll continue with the discussion when we look at tendency and coincidence. So in the course of the last discussion, we learned one way in which an accused prior bad character could be admitted, and that was actually under the credibility rules. So under Section 104 of the, the Evidence Act, which we were looking at in the last discussion, if the accused had chosen to testify 
and was being asked questions in cross-examination. Generally, they're protected from being asked questions about their prior bad character. But you may remember that the first way in which the accused bad character could become known to the jury related to Section 104. So not only did the accused give evidence, but they had conducted their cross-examination of prosecution witnesses in a particular and negative way. And that was gratuitous and not limited to a critique around the charges and the investigation of the particular charges before the court. So in such a case under 104, pursuant to a grant of leave, the prosecution could ask questions in relation to the accused bad character. The last way that the jury would become known of bad character would be under the principles of tendency and coincidence, which we'll discuss in about 10 minutes' time. So what we need to do is to look at the the second, and um, I won't say and final because the third is still yet to come, but the second mechanism which would lead to the jury becoming aware of the accused previous character, and that is through the principles of character that we're just about to look at. So I'll open up the Evidence Act. So the principles of admissibility with respect to character, uh, that's the background, and I'll return to the High Court's discussion in Melbourne once we've had a look at 110 and 112 of the Evidence Act, because once the principles of admissibility are satisfied under the Evidence Act, you then need to sort of turn your mind to, well, how are they relevant in a particular case? So 110 starts by considering evidence of the accused good character. So under section 110, subsection 1, the rules, the hearsay rule, the opinion rule, the tendency rule and the credibility rule do not apply to evidence adduced by an accused to prove directly or by implication that the accused is either generally or in a particular respect a person of good character. So note a few things here. Firstly, it's adduced by an accused and that is in a criminal case. And it can prove directly or by implication the accused is, and will come to generally or in a particular respect, a person of good character. So there are a few mechanisms of proof here. Typically, it might involve cross-examination of the police informant and a question often agreed or a series of questions asked to demonstrate that the accused is not known to police, has not been investigated by police, has not been charged with offences, has not been convicted of offences. And then the next bit, either generally or in a particular respect. Um, The questions that can be asked um, might be that the accused is of unblemished character, but they might also involve good character in a particular respect. So notoriously, you can elicit evidence that relates to the fact that the accused has no prior criminal history, for instance, for sexual offences. And that is relevant and admissible under 110 subsection 1, even if, for instance, the accused has numerous priors for dishonesty offences, drug possession, other offences. So 110 subsection 1 refers to character evidence in a particular respect, and that might involve a cross-section of character as opposed to character generally, and that's an entirely permissible course. In addition to asking the police witnesses about prior character, you might hear the accused give evidence of their own prior character. Or the more typical form is that that evidence is adduced by other uh, civilian witnesses um, that are called on the part of the defence. So there's a few different mechanisms as to how you might adduce the evidence, um, but it would be from one or more of the witnesses, potentially even including the accused. 
and it can be broad, it can be narrow. It's a provision that enables uh, generosity in relation to character. It's rather more broad than the common law used to be, which saw character as one and indivisible. So under the common law, the idea of eliciting evidence about a particular part of character would not have been valid, but it is under the Evidence Act. So the next question is um, whether the prosecution may adduce rebuttal evidence and beware, of course, they can under 110 subsection 2 and 110 subsection 3. So if the accused takes the particular forensic course of adducing evidence that he or she is either general, sorry, let's start with generally a person of good character. And sometimes this may be done by an accused themselves in the running such as by a protestation in answer to a question asked in cross-examination. And the, the evidence that's given by the accused is something along the lines of, I've never done such a thing and I never would. So that could be an assertion that the person is generally of good character. Now, if that takes place under 110 subsection 2, then the prosecution may adduce evidence to prove directly or, or by implication that the accused is not generally a person of good character. So 110 subsection 2 is the mechanism for rebuttal of that evidence by the prosecution. And 110 subsection 3 is a pairing that allows the prosecution to adduce rebuttal evidence to show directly or by implication that the accused is not a person of good character in a particular respect. So the situation where that might arise is often done in the running. So the accused might uh, make a forensic choice or might accidentally reveal an assertion of good character. And if that is done, then we come to that second mechanism where the jury may hear of the accused prior history, the first being that credibility mechanism under 104, and the second is under 110 subsection 2 or 3. The third is tendency or coincidence. And there would rarely be, it's difficult to think of a single other occasion where there would be an opportunity for the jury to hear evidence of the accused prior history. Now, in recognition of the fact that sometimes an accused in the running might get carried away in their answers to cross-examination, particularly given the robustness of any cross-examination, please note section 112. So if it is proposed by the prosecution to adduce rebuttal evidence under 110 subsection 2 or 3, and the form of rebuttal is to cross-examine the accused, then leave must be sought under section 112 of the Evidence Act. So if the rebuttal evidence does not come in the form of cross-examination of the accused, leave isn't needed. But let's say that the scenario where an accused has in the running made some assertion of good character and the prosecution wished to rebut that um, with specific suggestions under 110.2 or 3, leave must be sought under section 112. And in any circumstance where leave is um, to be granted by a trial judge, they must have regard to the matters in section 192. So to take into account that if leave was granted, uh, its effect on the particular trial, including the extent to which to allow those questions to be asked would be unfair to a party, the importance of the evidence in relation to which the leave permission or direction is sought, and so on and so forth. So sometimes a court might be concerned if the accused has made an assertion in the running of their good character and the prosecution perhaps understandably would like to rebut that suggestion by putting 30 pages of criminal priors to the accused, 
that the hurdle would be first that they would seek leave. And so really um, the court would have an opportunity to control the flow. You might think that um, some of the, the edited parts of the priors might satisfy the prosecution's need to negative that assertion that would give them enough um, to close on the basis that the accused is not a person of good character and they wouldn't be deprived of that forensic opportunity but nor would it lead potentially to unfairness of the sort that the courts have concerns about when it comes to the jury receiving evidence of the accused prior history and they're not really getting adequate assistance as to what to make of it. So they're the provisions that deal with the accused character. When to use those? Well, they should be clear. There needs to be some assertion on the part of the accused Typically, not in relation to the offences charged, this is really an assertion of good character separate to that. So you're looking in a fact pattern for something that is assertive of the fact that the accused is of good character. The first step, as mentioned, is 110 subsection 1. Of course, the accused can give evidence or call evidence of good character, but beware because, of course, that would allow rebuttal evidence if it turned out that there was that evidence lurking that would allow rebuttal. Now, in, I'll deal with the question and then we'll move on to uh, how the evidence may be used if good character evidence is given. Can an accused avail themselves of good character evidence if they have subsequent charges? This is a vexed area. There's a, a, a fairly recent from memory court of appeal decision that indicates that at that point, if charges are pending, then because there's not an adjudication, um, the safer view from memory is that it shouldn't be referred to in rebuttal. That was considered unorthodox because until that time, counsel had always taken the course that you shouldn't refer to the absence of previous criminal history, especially if there were eight pending trials that might have been severed from the primary charges. So whilst I encourage you to, to um, look up the answer in the Judicial College material, my memory is that um, pending charges or subsequent charges don't fall within that category. There might be an exception if now I'm reading the question, if they have subsequent charges that might have been proven, then it would be a question of how the good character evidence is to be used. So that links nicely back to what I need to say next, which is in the case of Melbourne, and this is picked up in the slides, whilst being a little bit confused and disappointed at how the law does treat good character evidence as inherently admissible and bad character evidence as inherently inadmissible, the High Court then went on to say, in a particular case, though, if good character evidence is called, the trial judge um, has to figure out, with the assistance of counsel, how the evidence is to be used. And there are two ways in which the evidence can be used. One is, let's say the accused is of prior impeccable character and they've been charged as a middle-aged person with an offence in breach of trust. So the jury may have heard evidence from the informant, the police informant, that the accused has never been implicated, charged, investigated, convicted of an offence. Now, the judge has a discretion to direct the jury that this is actually circumstantial evidence that's supportive of innocence. So the form of the direction doesn't descend into that level of detail, but essentially the jury can take it into account in considering whether the accused is guilty of the charges. So that's the first way in Melbourne that the court considered that the evidence could be used. So this is really, you've considered the point of relevance and now you're considering just how it relates to proof. 
The second way it can be used relates to credibility. So we're back in that trap, which is um, whether the jury is to believe any assertions or particular assertions made by the accused. Now, when, when our experts in relation to credibility, we know it's the believability of evidence that's given. In order to be relevant and admissible to considering credibility, the cautionary note is look carefully to the facts to make sure that the accused actually has given an account that the jury is considering. So the practicality of it is remembering that credibility relates to the jury's assessment of the believability of a witness. So the witness, the accused in this case, might have given a police interview denying responsibility and they're of previous good character. And you might think, that the jury should be directed about taking that into account in determining whether the accused told the truth in his or her interview. If the accused gave oral evidence in their trial, then you might also think it would be relevant to, and admissible to credibility. If the accused has maintained their right to silence at every stage, the accused actually hasn't offered a version that the jury would need to take into account in assessing credibility. So then you might think that the focus of the point of admissibility and how the jury would be told to use the evidence would focus back on that first limb of the Melbourne direction, which relates to taking it into account and determining likelihood of commission of the offence. So just to repeat, make it really emphatic, the High Court in Melbourne has said that good character evidence, whatever the mechanism of admissibility, and we know it's 110 under the Evidence Act, can potentially be relevant in two ways. One relates to likelihood of commission of the offence, and that's really um, a point of consideration whether the accused is guilty or not guilty. So it's relevant evidence that points away from guilt and or it can be relevant to the jury's assessment of credibility. The second requires some caveat that the accused actually gave a version that the jury is considering. And the last point coming out of Melbourne is the High Court has said that the trial judge retains a broad discretion as to whether the good character evidence goes to one or both of those two bases. So happily, that then ties off on that last point. You'll note that the notes then circle back to credibility and that's a point that we've already dealt with. So when it comes to the accused as a witness, remember the protection given to the accused in cross-examination by Section 104 of the Evidence Act. So if you might start, uh, if you were thinking of um, answering a practice problem or answering an exam problem that related to the credibility of the accused, then you could answer it purely on the basis of 104. But if you're considering credibility because you've also heard good character evidence, you need to start with 110 before you circle back to 104. So now we um, will get to the point that we have thus far um, uh, at least accidentally been postponing, which is tendency evidence, coincidence evidence. So this is the third and final way that the jury may become aware of the fact that the accused has prior criminal history. The very first question that needs to be asked is, let's assume that the accused has either committed prior offences or is charged with other offences. The question will arise, can that evidence be used as circumstantial evidence of guilt in the present case? So tendency evidence, coincidence evidence are processes of reasoning that might allow other allegations, whether they're prior, whether they're charged together with this particular allegation, 
to be used as circumstantial evidence to suggest the accused guilt. So that's the way that works generally. It's a circumstance. So it might take, and here we're starting very generally before we start descending further and further into the particularity. Conventionally, there might be a sexual assault allegation and the point of proof typically might be the complainant's evidence as to what they saw, heard or otherwise perceived. So classic direct evidence case of the complainant giving evidence as to the charged acts. Now, in a tendency or coincidence case, it might be that the accused either has committed or is accused of committing in the present trial other offences that may or may not be of a similar nature. So the question might be whether if the other charges are established, they might be used as one of the circumstantial points which would support the direct evidence given by the complainant. So tendency or coincidence, yes, we'll get particular as time goes on, might be used as circumstantial evidence to support a direct evidence case, such as in the case of a sexual assault allegation. Or it might be used as a circumstance in a circumstantial case, um, such as, for instance, the notorious case of what the media called the serial killer, Peter Dupas, um, who was back in the news recently, who has been convicted of the murders of three women. And in one of the trials that he faced, the jury were invited to conclude that because of points of similarity and commonality between the charged act, which was circumstantial, and a previous conviction that he had for murder in similar circumstances, that circumstance of coincidence could be used as one of the circumstances in a circumstantial evidence murder trial for the jury's consideration as to whether guilt is established. So if evidence is admissible as tendency or coincidence, or indeed both under the Evidence Act, it doesn't preclude the prosecution relying on both, it can be a circumstance that's used by the jury in the evaluation of the prosecution case beyond reasonable doubt. So that's how it works in theory. The difficulty, of course, that the court faces in an instant case as to whether it's admissible is that potentially it discloses the existence of other convictions. It discloses the existence of other criminal charges, whether they're proven or as yet unproven. And so the common law, as you may remember from your uni studies, was very resistant and slow to admit this type of evidence for fear that the jury might be overwhelmed in its reasoning process. And you'll remember from our first discussion, of course, we call that prejudice. So that the courts are very careful about ensuring that the probative force of any tendency reasoning or coincidence reasoning needs to be sufficiently strong on the one hand to justify admissibility and in a criminal case, on the other hand, that the risk of prejudice is transcended by that probative value. And to that extent, we know that relevant jury directions explaining permissible uses and talking a jury out of impermissible uses are very important at moderating prejudice. So there's the background. Lastly, this is not exclusive to criminal cases. And we have seen in the past examination of a tendency in a civil case. So you need to be live to the fact that in a civil case, this scenario can still arise. It's not limited to criminal cases. 
All right, so let's have a look at the provisions. I'll go through them in overview and then we'll do a sort of deeper dig in each of them. We need to conceptualise what the difference between tendency and coincidence is, which we'll do as soon as we've looked at the provisions. So the starting point is section 97 of the Evidence Act, which is the tendency rule. Now, I'm simplifying here. You can have a really close look at this provision in due course. But essentially, a person, evidence of a person's tendency to have a particular state of mind and or to act in a particular way is inadmissible unless notice is given in writing and the court thinks that the evidence will have significant probative value. Okay, so tendency relates to the accused tendency to think in a particular way and or to act in a particular way. So there's a requirement of notice in writing and secondly, the evidence must have significant probative value. Now, just to spoil some of the surprises to come, tendency relates to the, a pattern of thinking or a temptation to think and act in a particular way on the part of the accused. So it's localised to what we know about the accused personally. We're trying to deduce some sort of consistency in the way that the accused thinks and acts. Significant probative value, as we'll learn, has moved away from an assessment of the accused always acting in a similar way. So we need to, um, even the, the most recent uni graduates used to be taught consistently with the Court of Appeal of Victoria case in Velkowski that in looking at tendency and accused tendency to think in a particular way and act in a particular way, you were looking for points of similar behaviour. But the High Court in Hughes has held that's not the test at all. A person's tendency does not have to manifest in similar ways in order to have significant probative value. So the leading case is that of Hughes, and we'll look at what Hughes says, but what it emphatically says is that the Victorian line of authority culminating in Volkowski, which required points of similarity, is wrong. Now, they didn't actually say what it needed to be, but if I can plant the, the term unity, so it doesn't need to be an underlying unity in the old common law way, but you're looking for unity in the behaviour between the earlier incident and the current incident. I'll give you an example. Actually, I'll give you the example now. So a, a scenario that came up recently is one's pattern of behaviour to go to a particular cafe. And you know what your cafe is. I know what my cafe is. In fact, I've got two I do have, and this is actually why it's such a good example, because the way that the, my tendency to go out and have a drink in the morning manifests is that I leave my place of work and I go to one of two cafes to order a hot drink. It's as simple as that. So my, the unity in my pattern of behaviour is that usually at about a similar time, but not always, I leave my place of work usually to go to one cafe, but not always, and I get a hot drink. It's usually a chai, but sometimes it's a latte, okay? So that there's a tendency there, and the tendency in a huge sense is my tendency to go outside and go out and get a hot drink. In fact, it's similar in the respect that I go out and get a hot drink at a similar time each morning, but it doesn't need to be. Used to for Victoria. And there's the interesting point because the Victorian cases and the earlier common law cases before the Evidence Act 
tended to suggest that unless I went to my favourite cafe and further went to my favourite cafe and ordered a chai every day, that it wasn't part of my tendency and that the risks were that if I went to my second favourite cafe and ordered a latte, if that makes sense, that that wasn't part of my tendency to think in a particular way and it wasn't part of my tendency to act in a particular way. The way that Hughes works is that my behaviour is unified on each, almost every single day that I work, there's going to be some exit to get a hot drink, usually in the morning and usually a particular hot drink. But it's not necessary that I go to the same cafe for it to be part of the unity and it's not necessary that I order the same hot drink as part of the unity. Hopefully that makes sense. But that's what tendency is about. You're looking for some observation of the accused tendency to think in a particular way, act in a particular way. We then move on to coincidence and looking at section 98, evidence that two or more events occurred is not admissible to prove a person did a particular act or had a particular state of mind on the basis that having regard to any similarities in the events or the circumstances in which they occurred or both, it's improbable that the events occurred coincidentally unless firstly there needs to be notice in writing and secondly, the court thinks the evidence will, either by itself or having regard to other evidence adduced or to be adduced, um, have significant probative value. So point one is section 98 is the coincidence rule. Section 97 is the tendency rule. It can be both, but it's often separate. Secondly, the probative value that you need to examine under section 98 relates to similarities. The probative value under section 97 relates to my clumsy expression, unity, in inverted commas. So we look to similarities in the events or the circumstances in which they occurred or the similarities in both the events and the circumstances in which they occurred. So you look not to the accused pattern of behaviour, you look to the end point, you look to the events and the circumstances and you need to look to similarities. That's the only criterion, not unity, not any other clumsy expression that comes out of my head. It's just about similarities. And lastly, the point of proof based on coincidence is a person did a particular act or had a particular state of mind. So what coincidence reasoning assists with proof of is that it's the accused person who is, uh, is the one who is performing each of those acts. So to use my coffee or chai example, you're looking at the end point. So you're looking at the cafe's observations of a person attending to buy a chai and you're looking for some sort of connection between the orders to infer that it must be me who's doing the buying. And that's actually quite a good example of where my journey to Cafe 1 to buy a chai and my journey to Cafe 2 to buy a, a latte, whilst probably um, being, you know, evidence that could support a tendency, could never really reach the high hurdle of reaching coincidence standard because the journey to the cafes is not linked in similarity, except it is a cafe. And secondly, the drinks are different. It might be different if the points of similarity were increased. So not only did I buy a chai, but I bought an almond croissant. So I went to, let's say, the same cafe and bought a chai and an almond croissant. Then I went a week later and did the same thing. 
The could that evidence sustain an inference using coincidence reasoning that it had to be me who was doing the buying of the chai latte and the almond croissant? Well, that would really depend on, on how uh, distinct it is, that particular order. You might think it's a pretty standard order, in which case coincidence reasoning would not apply. But, you know, chai can be customised very closely. So uh, on the other hand, if I were to customise my chai and then ask, ask for something else that's unusual, then you start thinking, oh, it has to be the same person because it's such a silly customised chai order and I don't really hear that chai order very often. And when you pair it with two other, you know, sweet treats, it has to be that same person. And you can reason retrospectively from that, that that it has significant probative value. So the point of coincidence is, firstly, it's not to give you some insight into the accused state of mind. Instead, it is objectively reasoning from similarities and circumstances described that it's the same person. So we can use that example in relation to sexual assault trials if there are multiple allegations and they have points of similarity which allow back reasoning that it's the same accused, then the jury may be able to take that into account as a circumstance that supports the direct evidence of each complainant. And likewise, it was indeed coincidence reasoning in the second Peter Dupas trial because after the first trial, murder trial, he had it was said by the prosecution, mutilated his victim in a particular and unusual way. And in the second trial, it was said that he had again mutilated another victim in that same unusual way. So you're looking for points of similarity in the crime scenes from which you can reason that it's the same um, actor. That's how coincidence works. So for the purpose of the exam, issue one is consider carefully how the evidence is to be used. Can you reason that it has something to do with the accused state of mind and or the accused pattern of behaviour? If so, that's tendency and that's section 97. When you come to evaluate the probative value to see whether it transcends significant probative value, you look for unity per Hughes, not similarity per Velkowski. Similarity would help, but it's not necessary. In relation to coincidence on the one hand, it's under section 98, the focus is very much on the scenes described and the particulars of the scenes. So it's the particulars of more than one sexual assault allegation, the particulars of more than one uh, crime scene analysis to reason backwards that it's the same person and significant probative value must be evaluated by reference to similarity. That's the, the sole criterion. The more distinct the similarities, the more likely the evidence is to have significant probative value. Now, if you were relying on this evidence in a civil case, that is the only standard that you need to satisfy. Is it of significant probative value? If so, admissible, and then it could only be excluded under 135. So there's only the residual and general discretion to exclude. If you were the accused in a criminal case, and you were using tendency and or coincidence reasoning, then that would also be the last step that you'd need to satisfy. And I might be asked the question, when would an accused rely on coincidence or tendency reasoning? Sometimes we see cases in which it's said that the complainant is a persistent liar and has made similar false allegations in the past, for instance. That would be a tendency um, argument. Or 
the victim in a homicide case where self-defence is an issue was known to be aggressive and would terrify people generally, which would make it more likely that they had performed aggressively immediately before they were killed by the accused. So in such a case, the defence is actually relying on tendency reasoning. In the traditional case, though, it is the prosecution who relies on the accused tendency or the crime scenes that it's said that the accused committed only. 101 is the last of the legislative provisions that speaks to admissibility about tendency and coincidence, and it applies in those two cases. So please note carefully. So only in a criminal proceeding. Please do not use section 101 in a civil proceeding. You would only use the general discretion under 135. And two is it only applies in a criminal proceeding when the evidence is adduced by the prosecution. So if the defence adduces the evidence and it's said to be prejudicial in some way, you would use 135 or 137, one of the general discretions. But if it is a criminal case and if the tendency or coincidence evidence or both is relied upon by the prosecution, then the court needs to move to 101. And under subsection 2, if the court's found that the evidence has significant probative value under 97 or 98, the court then needs to turn to section 101, which states that tendency or coincidence evidence that's adduced by the prosecution can't be used against the accused unless the probative value of the evidence substantially outweighs any prejudicial effect it may have on the accused. So in a criminal case, once the judge has carefully triaged all of the relevant points in relation to 97 or 98, they then need to turn their attention to 101. And just that gentle reminder here to be quite precise and remember what probative value is, and which we talked about in an earlier discussion. So that is the, the force and the assistance that the evidence provides as to affect an issue. Prejudicial effect is something quite different. So prejudicial effect is the risk that the jury might be misled in its reasoning process. So it could be, and it actually this is a, a separate suggestion, quite a forceful suggestion, please identify what the prejudice is in the particular circumstances of the case. So where you come to evaluate prejudice, the next line is in your answer should be prejudicial effect is, so define prejudicial effect. And the author of today's notes, Sean Bricknell, has very helpfully extracted some of the points that would help you to identify what prejudice is. And then the next point is, what is the prejudice in the circumstances of the particular case? So I want you as examinees to then go on and think, well, hmm, it's alleged to be a serial killing. So you might think, you know, to hear that the accused has previously been convicted of murder, might mislead the jury and make the jury think that the accused is worthy of punishment generally, rather than thinking specifically about the admissible evidence in relation to this murder. Or in a multiple complainant sex case, the fact that other allegations had been made might lure a jury into thinking that the person is worthy of punishment or should show less attention to the admissible evidence in relation to each particular charge than they would generally. In relation to other offences, property offences, not quite as prejudicial. They don't carry that same ring of disgust and necessity of um, punishing the accused generally. 
So the forceful suggestion that I make to you is not only to identify what prejudice is generally, the risk that the jury might be misled in its reasoning process, but really carefully to think about, well, why would the jury be misled in the circumstances of this particular case in a criminal trial? You know, 101 relates to criminal trials, but if even if it was a 135 or a 137 evaluation, what's the risk the jury will be misled? look to the gratuitous nature of the earlier charge and how it might call for punishment. Look to the number of charges that the accused faces. Look for the risk that the jury might not bring a full and focused process of attention to the admissible evidence. So problem solving. Turning to the slides, slide two, Section 97 and and, and related question, what is tendency evidence? It's defined in part in the dictionary of the Act, possibly not terribly helpfully because it replaces the word tendency with other expressions that are a little bit difficult to read. So it talks about evidence of character, reputation, conduct or a tendency that the person has or had and it's adduced to prove that the person had a tendency to behave in a particular way or to have a particular state of mind. So the first bullet point is the explanation of what it is, which I've never really found particularly focused. But the second is really that call to arms. So when it comes to a tendency, it has to be about the particular accused. So, um, and just, you know, in a way and without sort of trying to, to be flippant, the Crime Investigation Channel thrives on this concept, the criminal signature or some in, modus operandi, some insight into the way that the accused ticks and some insight into the way that the accused acts in particular. Um, We know that it's circumstantial evidence, and then we turn to the test under Section 97 and consider whether the evidence has significant probative value. Slide four must either be committed to memory or it should be always within hand's reach if the exam is open book. Here is the test for evaluating whether evidence has significant probative value under Section 97 per the High Court in Hughes. There are two steps. Firstly, the extent to which the evidence proves the tendency, and two is the extent to which the evidence makes the facts and issue more likely. So there are the two steps. To signal the differences... Really, the extent to which the evidence proves the tendency, to use my clumsy example of going to the cafe, if the tendency is identified as my tendency to have a hot drink from a local cafe in the morning, each particular event where I go to a local cafe and order a hot drink, you might think supports that tendency pretty closely. If the prosecution, and we're assuming it's a criminal case, had drafted the tendency far more tightly, but I have a tendency to visit a cafe, that is capital A, X cafe, to buy a chai latte, then you'd have to look at the evidence to see whether I'd gone to, to X cafe and bought a chai latte on that particular occasion. And then the second issue is the extent to which the evidence makes the facts an issue more likely. Now, that would depend on what I was charged with, hopefully nothing, but in this particular fictional fact pattern, let's say, for instance, there was an armed robbery that had been committed or something like that, and the person who had committed the armed robbery bought a chai latte and an almond croissant immediately before. It would depend on on how many other times I'd, I'd made that same order, how many times I'd visited that cafe, how many times I'd bought the same drink before moving to the evaluation as to whether that tendency supported the facts in issue.
And then we'd need to move on to the section 101 process. I've now said it a number of times. I'll say it one more time and risk out outstaying my welcome. Remember, please, that if it's a civil case or the defence is relying on this evidence, you finish with section 97. That's the end of the discussion. So then prejudice and evaluate prejudice. Thank you for the recap in relation to slide six. The probative value and relevant factors. Consider how the evidence is relevant, the amount of misconduct, time gap between misconduct, geographic connection between the misconduct and the specificity of the tendency. While we're on this topic, my uh, respectful suggestion is um, to clock watch when it comes to tendency and coincidence problems and to remember to not to become so concerned with evaluating probative value that you miss easy marks in relation to your section 101 analysis. So triage the amount of time very carefully. Usually there's a fairly generous allowance for marks in relation to tendency and coincidence and make sure that you have covered enough, uh, left enough time for full coverage. Let's say it's worth 10 marks out of your 100 marks. You'll remember that each mark affords you 1.8 minutes. So by the 60% of the time allowance, the 60% of the 18 minute mark, it's time to move on to probative effect, uh, probative consequences, prejudicial effect, and time to start thinking about whether relevant jury directions can moderate any prejudicial effect. Okay, so you go out and analyse the probative value. Similarity is not required, as I've mentioned, but instead you're looking for some unity between earlier events and the particular event. But the closer you can get to the point of similarity, the more likely you are to satisfy that test, not only of probative value, but of significant probative value. An easy mark, if you would like one, and um, we often do, is noting that when it comes to the test for admissibility, the trial judge does not take into account questions of credibility or reliability. So it is none of the trial judge's business whether the evidence may be accepted by the jury or not. So that was the High Court in IMM overturning the Victorian Court of Appeal authorities culminating from memory in DuPass, which said that the trial judge must weigh into the question of credibility or reliability. Not so, the High Court has said in IMM, which is a tendency case. So for instance, in a case involving multiple complainants in a sex assault allegation, the trial judge is not concerned with whether there are inherent weaknesses in credibility or one of the witnesses is demonstrably false, for instance. It's none of the trial judge's business. Their questions are for the jury's consideration if the trial judge allows the evidence as admissible. Now, a related point is, and this is where things become technical, but they won't get any more technical than this. The recent High Court authority of Bauer that tells us in relation to a single complainant case in a sex assault scenario, that there could be uncharged acts. So the complainant may give evidence of charge one, charge two, then an uncharged act, charge three and charge four. Query prior to Bauer whether that uncharged act could fall within a general tendency 
evinced by the accused, for instance, to support a suggestion that they have a particular sexual attraction to the complainant and a tendency to act out on that attraction. So this is, that is um, the reasoning that's behind the court decision in Bowler. In that case, the High Court held that an uncharged act is as valid as a charged act in forming the basis for inferring a tendency. So an uncharged act that is narrated by a complainant either as context or as part of a sequence, but it, it might lack some of the particularity of a charged act, can also be taken into account by a trial judge, can also be used as the basis of tendency reasoning. The tendency in that particular case and in other cases is, as mentioned, the accused tendency to have a sexual attraction to the particular complainant and a tendency to act out on that particular attraction. We have seen in Hughes a more general tendency, which was his suggested tendency, to be attracted to girls falling within an age range and a tendency to act out on that general attraction. They're the sorts of ways in which tendencies can be expressed. And the last very helpful slide, slide 10, is the factors which might inform the evaluation of particular prejudicial effect. And they've been distilled as including multiple similar allegations um, might lead a jury to generalise rather than observe its oath and be specific about whether each charge is proven beyond reasonable doubt. An overflow judgment if the evidence is morally repugnant and if the evidence is weak, then the evidence of tendency might be used as a make weight. Please note in cross-reference, bullet point five, that there is a direction that can be given under section 27 of the Jury Directions Act that can try to mitigate the prejudicial effect. So coincidence evidence is potentially admissible under section 98 and it's quite different to tendency because as you may remember, you look at the events. You don't look at the accused and what we know about the accused or what we can infer about the accused. You look at the events and if they're so similar that it, you must reason as a matter of logic that it was the same person or you know, it, it gives rise to the significant inference that that's the case, then they might be relevant and admissible under section 98. So look to the points of similarity, look to their separation in time and consider whether having regard to that sole touchstone of similarity, the evidence amounts to having significant probative value. You may wish to note here that the point of similarity is the sole touchstone of admissibility. So it's unlike tendency in that respect. You don't need striking similarity like you used to at common law. Um, so the two-step test in Hughes does not apply and that makes sense because we're not inferring anything about how the accused thinks or acts. We're simply using the events and the circumstances to infer that it must have been the same accused that committed each. So here the process of evaluation of uh, significant probative value or not takes place under section 98 and relates to points of similarity. You might wish to draw points of similarity to the examiner's attention. Points of dissimilarity would weaken probative value. So we evaluate the points of similarity, then evaluate the points of dissimilarity. It might be that they're coincidental but Many people do the same thing. It is what's referred to in criminal law as stock in trade. 
So if I were to invite a show of hands over the internet, how many people might go out in the morning to a cafe close to their place of work to get a hot drink? I would expect there to be quite a few positive responses. Thank you. Yes, that is, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. That is simply how many people roll in an office environment. Now, that's a particular and silly example. Stock in trade is where an offence is committed a particular way out of convenience, what we would call utilitarianism. It's just the way that something is done. So if it is suggested that a knife is used in a murder in Australia and therefore it must be the same accused that did it, you might be left thinking, well, now in Australia we have um, gun control, which is at least in part successful. So if we were to analyse the um, homicide statistics, a knife may be used more often than in other jurisdictions because it's an offence, it's a weapon of convenience. So consider points of dissimilarity and consider whether the similarity between events is more referable to that stock in trade reasoning than it is to it always being the same person committing those offences. Though I'm repeating myself, if this is a civil case or if this is the defence in an, uh, a criminal trial, you finish your evaluation at section 98. Any prejudicial effect is caught by 135 in a civil case, 135 or 137 in a criminal case. If it's the prosecution in a criminal case, you then go on and consider section 101 and the risk of prejudice and note carefully the availability of jury directions to help to moderate the prejudice back to a more, not acceptable level, but a level in which this uh, probative value still transcends prejudicial effect. Now, here is perhaps the last value I can attempt to add in relation to coincidence. I would suggest in relation to reference to relevant jury directions to moderate prejudice, to use that as a, an expression uh, fairly consistently in relation to prejudice. Okay, that was poorly expressed. In a 101 analysis, but this, this would also apply to 135 and 137, you note what prejudice is, then you apply that to the facts of the particular case. The last point to note, please, is to say always that the trial judge could endeavour to moderate prejudice by the use of relevant jury directions, and you would go on to say clearly identifying the use that can be made of the evidence and the use that the jury must not make of the evidence. And that simple expression will demonstrate to the examiner that you're aware in a practical sense of the availability of jury directions to help the jury work through the issues. You can then go on and draft a perfect jury direction, but my experience in the area of tendency and coincidence is that those jury directions are voluminous. So I can't help but think that if you tried to draft that relevant jury direction, you might be spending more time than the available points. But I do recommend that you always refer to the availability of jury directions, clearly delineating legitimate use from illegitimate use to a jury in any evaluation of prejudicial effect. And yes, the last point is a gentle reminder that they can overlap and potentially the examiner could ask you an unkind question that involves both tendency and coincidence. And my respectful suggestion is that you just need to start at the start, which is 97 and 101, and then move on to section 98. And there's no shortcut because the evaluation of significant probative value for both is quite different. 
Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.